I don't think it's any surprise to anybody here that I really love history and I love archaeology as well. And again, I think that's pretty common knowledge. And perhaps you enjoy those things too. And if you do, then I think you'll appreciate this. This picture that I, I want to bring up here shows a, a tablet that was uncovered from the ancient city of Ur. Now, if you remember in the Bible, Ur was the hometown of Abraham before he was called by God to leave and go to a land of promise. This tablet is estimated to be from about 1750 B.C., so nearly 4,000 years old. The, the dating of it puts it between the time of Abraham and Moses. So very, very ancient. It's written in the language of Ugaritic. And obviously there's not a lot of people who speak Ugaritic, but they have been able to translate most of this tablet. It comes from a man, it was written by a man named Nuni, Nuni from ancient Mesopotamia, and it's written to his merchant named El Nasir. Basically, the tablet concerns a transaction that happened between these two men in which Nuni received copper from this merchant that didn't quite live up to his expectations. Here's how part of the, tra the translation for the tablet reads. You did not do what you promised. What do you take me for that you treat me like somebody with such contempt? It is now up to you to restore my money to me in full. I will not accept any copper from you that is not of a fine quality. So what I can tell is this appears to be the very first one-star review that has ever been discovered. That this is really a customer complaint note. Obviously, he's not happy. And this begins a long and glorious tradition of customers complaining about services, products, and other things. Again, you know, on the internet, you can find product reviews in which sometimes people will be very harsh in denouncing whatever, whether it's a service or a product. Uh, so it all goes back to here. And actually, we know, even biblically, there was a lot of complaining going on. Even you go back to the story of Moses and the people in the wilderness complaining against Moses and against the Lord. You have this long tradition of complaints, and we all know about this. We can complain about just about everything, right? We can complain about weather and traffic. We can complain about uh, our families. We can complain about having to wait somewhere. We can be complaining about virtually anything, and we do it sometimes without even thinking. That's just our natural language is to grumble at things. In fact, it's very possible, and I'm not going to ask anybody to reveal this, but you, there may have been some complaining on the way to church this morning. Who knows? Well, I'm certainly not exempt from that spirit of grumbling and complaining. And I don't think you are either, because all of us kind of go to this natural language of grumbling. In fact, it's maybe more surprising when somebody doesn't complain than when they do. That's how natural it is for us. But let me say this, for a follower of Jesus, nothing could be more out of place in the Christian life than grumbling. After all, the believer has been given so much more than we could have ever asked or hoped in Christ. We as sinners have been made to inherit God's eternal kingdom. We as sinners have received God's grace in abundance. We've received an eternal inheritance. 
So let me think. Hmm, what do we have to complain about? I think complaining on the lips of a believer is not a good look. Here's what I want to highlight this morning. A life free from complaining is a testimony to a watching world. I think as we as believers, when we put off complaining, we have a testimony to the world that's watching. Now, the testimony of our church, and I think every church, hinges a great deal on our attitude, doesn't it? What is our attitude? Is it one of complaining, of griping, of disputing, or is it a godly testimony? A lot of it hangs on our attitude. And griping and complaining flows from a spirit that is prideful and self-centered. The very things Paul is concerned about in the book of Philippians. After all, just think about this. Think about this with me for a second. Why do we complain? Ultimately, it's because I want to put me first. Right? I'm inconvenienced. I'm being made to wait. This, I do not like this, and so I am going to complain about it. It all stems back to a me-centered. If you're complaining or you hear someone complaining in the line at the fast food restaurant that their food's not getting there fast enough, I guarantee they're not thinking about the workers in the back. They're thinking only about themselves. You see, what we tend to do is when we're prideful and self-centered, we complain, we grumble. Well, the book of Philippians is written to counteract this attitude. Paul has given the ultimate example of humble servanthood in the person of Jesus. In fact, back up in chapter 2, verse 4, it says, Let each of us look out not only for our own interests, but also the interests of others. We're to be others-focused. And that's what Jesus modeled for us. But every time we complain, it's evidence that we're not living the kind of selfless humility that Jesus did. Likewise, when we complain, it damages our testimony for Christ. We don't model the Savior when we complain and grumble and gripe. After all, no one is drawn to a church that's constantly complaining and murmuring and fighting within itself. So we come to Philippians chapter 2. In verse 14, and we see this here, and I want to list for us as we work our way through the passage, four exhortations, four commands, essentially, that are going to steer us towards a proper testimony for the Lord. The first is this, put off complaining, put off complaining. As I've said in the sermon title, stop whining. That's, that is the heart of what is going on here. Stop the whining and the complaining. Could the Bible be any more practical? I mean, talk about hitting us where we live. That's something that's a lot easier said than done, putting off complaining. Look at verse 14. Let's read it together. Do all things without complaining and disputing. So back a few verses earlier, Paul has talked about the Christian life in its complexity. He said in verse 12, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. How does that happen? Well, God is at work in you. And if you remember, we noted in verse 13, when it says God is at work in you, that's a plural noun. It's, it's in you, in you all. So within the church, God is at work, and we are at work in living out what we say we believe. 
But what should we do? What is it we need to work out, as it were? Well, Paul puts his finger on it in verse 14. Do all things without complaining and disputing. You notice how personal this is to the Philippians? Paul doesn't just have sort of one set formula. Like every church needs to to know the same thing. What the Corinthian church needed to work out was different than what the Philippian church needed to work out, which was different than the Colossian church. Paul knew apparently in Philippians and in Philippi that the danger here was that they could go into complaining and disputing. And we will see later on in this letter, there was in fact the rumblings of a dispute among this church. Perhaps it stemmed from selfishness and complaining. But he gives this command. And it's, quite honestly, a difficult command, isn't it? You notice what he says, do all things without complaining and disputing. Not some things, not most things. Not things that pertain to your job, do without complaining. Not things that pertain to your family. He says, all things. Well, that's comprehensive. And that's what makes this so hard. You know, yeah, I can get through, uh, you know, one hour on Sunday morning together with you all without complaining, perhaps, but a whole week? You might say to me, well, you don't know the people I work with. You You don't get it. Well, I may not, but here's the command of the apostle of the Lord to us. Do all things without complaining. Not necessarily easy, but remember, Verse 13, God is at work in you. So let's take a look at this. Do all things without complaining and disputing. Uh, Let me explain, first of all, the flow of these verses. The, The command is here in verse 14. That is an imperative. Do all things without. So that's what is being commanded of the Philippians. Everything else is an explanation. For instance, verse 15 gives the purpose statement. What's the purpose of doing all things without complaining and disputing? Well, so that you may become blameless and harmless. And and what's the result of being blameless and harmless? Well, it's that you shine as lights in the world. And, And how do we shine as lights in the world? Well, it's by holding fast to the word of life, and so on and so on. In other words, it all stems back to the central command. Don't complain. Stop whining. And then the results and purpose will all flesh themselves out in the passage as we go. So I'm going to spend quite a bit of time on verse 14, less time perhaps on the other verses, because I want to drive home the command that's here. And so he tells us, put off complaining. Now he uses two words in verse 14, complaining and disputing. The first word, complaining, really has the idea of muttering under one's breath, of kind of murmuring almost. In fact, some translations may even render this murmuring. It's an interesting Greek word. It has the idea of sounding like what it means. Like we do this in English sometimes. Like Words like hum or hiss are meant to sort of sound like what we're describing. Well, in, in Greek, the word for complaining is gungissimus. And I found, interestingly, on my own little experiment here, that you can say the Greek word gungissimus without opening your teeth. So you can say it through clenched teeth, gungissimus. And that's kind of the idea. You can just mutter under your breath, you know. And it's that complaining, griping, murmuring, muttering. It's also the same word that's used of the wilderness generation in the Old Testament. 
In fact, the only other time Paul uses this word is to describe the complaining and the murmuring of the people in the wilderness under Moses. That gives us a very fitting picture. In fact, I think it's intentional that Paul wants us to think about the complainers in the wilderness. So with a finger in Philippians 2, turn back to Exodus chapter 16. Exodus 16, because I want us to see this. There are many examples of instances of Israel complaining in the wilderness, but this is one, and I think a good one. It shows us what complaining looks like, and I want to make a few observations from this passage, observations about grumbling and disputing. Exodus 16, verse 1 says, And they journeyed from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died at the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots full of meat, and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And on and on their complaining goes. But I just want to stop at verse 3. So what do we see here? First of all, it's been two months, less than two months, that they've departed from Egypt. And already they're starting to bellyache, aren't they? They're starting to grumble and complain. Let me make three observations about complaining from this passage. First of all, complaining ignores all of God's blessings, all of his benefits. You notice how quickly they've forgotten about the Red Sea and about the plagues? Do you notice how quickly they've forgotten about God's guiding hand through the wilderness? And now all they're concerned about is, oh, there's not enough to eat. We're hungry. Why? We should have just died in, in Egypt. It ignores all the benefits, all the things God has done for them. And you notice what? It also has a bad memory, doesn't it? Because let's look at what they say in verse 3. Oh, that we had died at the hand of the Lord in Egypt when we sat by pots of meat and we ate bread to the full. It was so good back then. You do remember they were slaves, right? It wasn't exactly a walk in the park. But see, they only remember that, oh, it was so nice. We had meat. By the way, this is the same incident where God sends manna to the people. Nevertheless, they end up grumbling about that, too. Here, though, they have this kind of distorted view of their past. It was so much better back then. They miss all of God's benefits. And this is what happens when we complain. We overlook all the good things that God does. We overlook all the blessings and benefits we have to focus on the thing that really, really gets us. And we focus only on that. There's something about complaining, too, that when you see someone else, especially those who are less fortunate than you are, and they're not complaining, it just drives a dagger in your ribs almost. It's like, wow, I guess I really have nothing to complain about. One Indian proverb I stumbled upon said this, I, I had no shoes and complained about it until I met a man with no feet. See, oftentimes we're complaining about having no shoes and there's someone else out there who can't even wear shoes. See, complaining ignores all of God's benefits. Secondly, it incites distrust and disunity. It invites distrust and disunity. 
You notice in verse 2, it says, The whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. So it wasn't just a general, oh, man, I really wish I had something to eat. It actually turns into they come to Moses and Aaron and say, listen, this is your fault. You brought us out here. And they start essentially attacking Moses and Aaron over this, their whole situation. See, when we're complainers, it, it drives a wedge between people, especially in a church. Because in the church, we are, again, called to love one another. We are the body of Christ. But if we are, spend all our time complaining about stuff and complaining about each other and arguing and disputing with one another, it drives a wedge of distrust and disunity. I mean, how, how do church splits usually happen? An argument somewhere, somebody was complaining, somebody was mad about something and voiced it and ends up being two sides to that argument and it all goes south from there. See... Complaining incites distrust and disunity. Finally, complaining invites God's judgment. It invites God's judgment. And we don't see it so much here in Exodus 16, but if you look at other passages like, for instance, Numbers 11.1, 1, says the people complained against the Lord and the Lord's anger was aroused against them. See, God is not pleased with complaining. Kind of like, uh, like a father whose children complain about this and complain about that when he has provided for them all that they need. Well, God, so much more. He has given Israel everything they need in the wilderness, and repeatedly they complain. Go back to Philippians 2, though, with me, because there's a second word. Besides just complaining, murmuring, muttering, it also says disputing. They're disputing with one another. Don't do that, he says. It has the idea of speaking back one to another, sort of back-and-forth banter. So this is not just complaining, kind of wishing things were different or complaining about this or that, but actually now discussing it and coming out and saying, no, this is your fault, kind of like they did to Moses. That when complaining is full-grown, it becomes disputing. And again, this is what oftentimes happens in a church where arguments form and it turns into disputing, all because somebody began with complaining. I read a list compiled by Tom Rayner of 25 silly things churches fight over. And he had a list, of course, of 25 of these. I selected a couple. But listen to this. A church argument and vote, and and he's kind of tongue-in-cheek about these. So, Uh, A church argument and vote to decide if a clock in the worship center should be removed. So a church fought about that, apparently. And he says, I think it was a timely argument. A 45, one church had a 45-minute argument over the type of filing cabinet to purchase. Black, brown, two, three, or four drawers. Uh, another church discovered that the budget was off by 10 cents, which led to a large church argument. Again, he says, I have to admit, it's 10 times more important than a church missing a penny. A dispute um, over some church members... In one particular church, I don't know what happened here, but apparently some of the church members hid a vacuum cleaner from some of the other church members, and it resulted in a major fight and a split, to which Rainer says, thus began the second Electrolux church. (laughs) But let me ask, what kind of testimony is this when a church is disputing, fighting, complaining? What does the world see? They see 
just that. Disunity, disharmony. They don't see necessarily the love of Christ, do they? Because everybody's squabbling. Everybody's trying to get their own way. Again, let me take you to another church business meeting. This one, they were talking about purchasing a new heater for the baptismal. And there was a big church discussion, you know, this board meeting or this uh, business meeting. Everybody was deciding, trying to say, you know, put in their two cents about where the money should be spent. And one person stood up in opposition to the heater and said, well, we don't use the baptistry that much anyways. And doesn't that just get the heart of it? A church that's fighting is not going to be a church that's reaching out, is it? You see, a life free from complaining is a testimony to the world. Therefore, put off complaining. Let me give the second exhortation, though. Put on a godly testimony. So do all things without complaining and disputing, he says in verse 14. That's the command. What's the purpose? What's the purpose of that command? He says, verse 15, so that or that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So he's giving this purpose. Stop grumbling and complaining so that you can become something else, so that you can put on a godly testimony. Now, this doesn't mean perfection, that we have to sort of be a perfect church. But what it does mean is that we should be a godly testimony to the world. I want to take this word by word on verse 15. He says that you may become first blameless. That's the first word we run into. What does he mean, blameless? Well, it means living in a way that cannot be accused of wrongdoing. Paul uses this in, the, uh, in 1 Timothy to talk about the elder or the uh, ruler in the church, you know, the, the, the role of pastor elder, that he should be blameless. Not morally perfect, because no man is. But there shouldn't be any accusation brought against him that sticks. Not anything serious. You know, it's a shame when accusations are based in reality. But for the believer, our testimony should be one where we are living above reproach, blameless. He also says harmless. Maybe a better translation is innocent here. Um, in In Romans, Paul writes to believers, be wise as to what is good and innocent or harmless as to what is evil. Again, this doesn't mean totally innocent without sin. The Bible says all have sinned. John tells us in 1 John 1 that anyone who says he has no sin is a liar. But the word here means pure or unmixed. One preacher said like this. I thought this was helpful. What you see is what you get. That's what this word means. What you see is what you get. We're not playing a game or a charade, not a, not a hypocrisy or a mask that's being worn, but instead a pure testimony, blameless. He also says that they are to be children of God. Now, that, that is in a very real sense, that when you are born again, you become a child of God. But this has to do with their conduct and their testimony. It says, live as those who are blameless, harmless, as children of God. In other words, you are representing your heavenly father. You have that last name. Were you ever told that when you were a kid? You know, go out and represent your family name well, because you're a, you know, 
Johnson or a Thomas or whatever, you know, whatever your last name is. That's, you take that name and don't humiliate our family. Live according to that name. Well, as children of God, we ought to represent our heavenly father. Let me ask, when we are complaining and disputing with one another, are we being a good testimony as children of God? Fourth, though, he also mentions without fault, and that that has sort of the same idea as blameless that we've already seen. Uh, This was used of the sacrificial land, without spot or blemish, that no accusation that comes against us can stick. Why is this testimony so important? He gives us in verse 15, because the world we live in is a crooked and perverse generation. The world needs the testimony of believers. And crooked and perverse probably is about the best description you can have of our world today. Now, it was true in Paul's generation as well, but equally true of ours. Crooked and perverse generation. And he says, you're living in the midst of it. So live out a good testimony. Not the the complaining and disputing, but live out a Christ-like testimony. Again, he uses two words to describe the world, crooked and perverse. Now, crooked is pretty, pretty self-explanatory. It was a word which was used for a winding river. It was used of the path in the sand that a snake would make, sort of waving back and forth. When uh, Ash and I were in college, we went to college in West Virginia, and I got an appreciation for crooked roads, because every road in West Virginia goes like this. And... Uh, you know, there's hardly a straight road in the whole state. But it gives you a picture, this winding. It's not straight. It's, it's twisted. It has this idea of twisting or turning from what is the standard. So God has given us what is truth, and then the crooked person departs from it. They, they don't remain on the standard. They're swerving away from it. Uh, moral crookedness. In other words, the world thinks that what is evil is good and what is good is evil. The world has a warped sense of thinking about right and wrong because they don't, they don't conform to the standard, to the level. In fact, that's the next word. It says perverse, so crooked and perverse. Again, this is, has the idea of twisted, but it also is abandoning the standard altogether. That, you know, we don't need to be held to something. We can do as we please. We can live as we want. I'm going to let you in on a little secret at our house. Uh, In our living room, we have a gas fireplace. There's a mantle above it. And then above that is our TV is mounted up there on the wall. And when we were first moving in there, I got all the equipment. I got my level and all that. and And I hung the TV right above the mantle. And then when I stepped back... It was crooked. It just it didn't look right. It was off. So I said, well, I must have done something wrong. So I took it down. I got back up there with my level, checked it all off. Okay, you know, it should be right now. So I stick it back up. It's not level. I can't figure out why, why does it look so bad. Turns out, and you know where this is going probably, the mantle was off. And so even when it was hung straight, even when it looked right, and it should have been right, it looked off because of the mantle. And so here's the secret. Our TV is actually a little off. But it looks right. You would never notice it. 
But that's the point, though. The world has a, has a crooked way of judging things. So even when you're living the truth and you're living right, you don't match with the world's values because they're crooked. They're off. They're not level. And you see, that's why the world needs the testimony of believers. Because in, in hanging the TV right on the wall, it actually showed that you know what was off was the level, was the uh, mantle. And that's what happens when believers live a pure testimony before the Lord. It shows the world, you know what, we're the ones that are off. Or at least it should. See, we live out this testimony in a crooked and perverse generation. And what a mess society is today. Because they've abandoned the standard. And the, the more they do that, the more mess it will become. The good news is, when we live a godly testimony, and we put on that godly testimony... For those who realize what a mess it is, can see something different in God's church and perhaps can be saved from this crooked and perverse generation. Not only do we put off complaining and put on a godly testimony, we also must put forth the word of life. Put forth the word of life. Listen to what it says at the end of verse 15. Within this crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world... Holding fast the word of life. So in this crooked and perverse generation, what they need is the light of the gospel. And God has called us, his followers, to be the ones who hold out, hold forth that gospel message, the word of truth for everybody. And we can only do that by having a right reputation. Paul says, believers shine as lights in the world. So in this self-seeking, relativistic everyone's own truth world that's denying all standards, Christians shine. So the darker the night, the brighter the light in this case. It's very reminiscent of what Jesus says, isn't it, in the Sermon on the Mount? He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And then he goes on to say, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So in a world of deep darkness, we are the light of the world, that testimony of the truth. Well, how do we, fun- how do we live as lights in this world? How do we function? Well, he says in verse 16, here's how you do it. You hold fast or hold forth the word of life. Now, there's a little bit of debate as to how to interpret verse 16, because it could be hold fast, as in um, hold to, be faithful to the scriptures, Or it could be translated holding forth, as in we're holding out the word of life, presenting it to others. And you could make a case on the context for either one, that we shine as lights when we hold tight to the gospel or when we present the gospel. I think holding forth is the main idea, though, based on two things. First of all, the context is lights in the world, so sharing, not holding necessarily, but sharing the word of life. Secondly, he uses the term word of life. This is one of the few times that Paul uses this expression. And it seems to be the idea of the word that gives life. We're holding forth the word that will provide life to this dying world. So we are the ones who are holding forth the word. And if I can say it just as clearly as possible, what this world needs is this here, the word of God, the gospel that is presented in the pages of Scripture. 
and the world will continue down its path of self-destruction until it bows the knee and recognizes Christ as Savior. It will. It's, it's human nature to continue in sin. And so we as believers need to put on a godly testimony so we can present the truth and be the light that people need. Again, if we're a church that's complaining and disputing, if we are believers who are marked more by complaining than anything else, we're probably not going to be very appealing lights. And I don't know if anybody's going to want the word that we have to share if our words are mostly complaints. See, when people look at the church and look at us, are we lights? Are we holding forth the truth, presenting it to others? Or are we fighting amongst ourselves? That's the question. Finally, though, and I want to highlight this as well, because this is a little bit interesting. So not only do we put forth the word of life, we should also put others before yourself. Put others before yourself. And this is where the passage takes an interesting turn, because rather than keep explaining this, Paul gets into some autobiographical information. He starts talking about himself in verse 16. And it makes it a little hard to outline this passage of Scripture because, okay, what's he doing here? Is he he running off in a different direction? But I think in some ways, he uses himself as an example of how to break free from complaining and disputing. So if our response to complaining is to put it off, put on a godly testimony, put, put the word of life, put forth the word of life, then we also ought to put others before yourself. It's an antidote, if you will, to complaining. See, when we will cease to be complainers when we start putting others above ourselves. Because remember, the root of complaining is self-centeredness. So when we put others first, we're undoing that. Again, I, I point you back to Philippians 2.4. Let each one look out, not for his own interests, but the interests of others. So let's look at what Paul says. Verse 16. Holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. So Paul talks about himself here and says, all of this, in other words, when you learn to put away complaining and live as lights in the world, then I will rejoice having not run and labored in vain. Because that was his his heart, his desire for the Philippians is that they would be a godly testimony before a watching world. He says, I rejoice in that. I rejoice in that you are living out that testimony and I've not labored in vain. Let me point out a couple of things. And these, I don't think these are on the screen, but you can note them if you want. Your service for the Lord is not in vain if you serve the Lord. Paul says here that when they grow, the Philippians grow, he rejoices. He points to the day of Christ here. He's already talked about that in Philippians back in chapter 1. But the day of Christ is going to be the day when it's all made clear and all the accounts will be settled. And in that day, Paul will rejoice 
because he sees already in the Philippians that they are obedient. He said that back in verse 12. They are following the Lord. So his labor has been to see them grow, and they are. But I want to note this about Paul, and this is the main thing I want us to notice, is that he puts others first. So not only is his service for the Lord not in vain, his sacrifice for others is joyful. And so your sacrifice for others is joyful. You notice this in verse 17. I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith. Paul was not living for himself, but was living and pouring himself out for their benefit, for their faith. He talks about himself as a drink offering. That was part of the temple observance. They would pour out a drink offering, empty out a cup in front of the altar. And it represented the, the emptying, and the way he uses it, emptying himself, pouring himself out even unto death. In other words, he's giving over his life for this purpose of investing in the Philippians. He's put them first. And again, this is the antidote, I think, for complaining. Complaining and disputing comes out of a self-centered, me-first mindset. And Paul says, I rejoice in you because I'm investing myself, I'm pouring myself out for you. And I think when we do that, when we start to invest in others and put others above ourselves, we're going to find ourselves complaining less and less. We'll find ourselves, the more selfless we are, the less complaining we will do. So a life free from complaining is a testimony to a watching world. So the question might be, how does your life measure up? Are you somebody who complains a lot? Uh, do you express your discontent a lot of times? Well, I want us to do something today and this week that might help us. It's something that has been especially convicting to me. And that is really paying attention to our complaints and what comes out of our mouth and what comes out of our heart. So I want to ask this question. It may seem a little off at first, but how many steps did you take yesterday? And that's not a question that I've thought a lot about. In fact, a decade ago, if you'd asked somebody, you know, how many steps did you take yesterday? They'd probably be like, what are you talking about? Like, I, why would I do that? But in 2014, there's a company called Fitbit that came out with this little watch-like thing, and it counts your steps, right? And so it became real popular, so I guess it still is, to, you know, count your steps. And you can talk about, you know, I got my steps in today or whatever. And people started paying attention to how many. So if I ask that question to, nowadays, I say, you know, how many steps did you take yesterday? I'm, as likely as not, somebody's going to look down at their wrist and say, oh, you know, I'll, I'll tell you. Because we're, we're paying attention to that. I use that illustration only to say this. If we had a Fitbit to count our complaining, I wonder what it would be ticking at. You see, it's one of those things that you don't even notice it. I, I just sit there complaining about this, complaining about that, and then I stop to think to myself, Oh, yeah, that just happened. It's just like my steps. I, you know, I don't think about how many steps I take until I have something there that's counting it for me. So what I want us to do is to stop and think about your complaining this week and, and keep a catalog. You don't have to write it down, but pay attention to when you start complaining this week. And I think the more you start to train yourself to notice it, the more you will notice that you do it. Just like I would probably be shocked how many steps I took. 
Or maybe I would be embarrassed by how many steps I took. I don't know. But the point is, once you start paying attention to it, you start to notice it. So start paying attention to your complaints. I've been doing that this week, and like I said, it's been pretty convicting. There have been several times this week when I started to complain about something, and I thought, I'm preaching on not complaining this week. And suddenly I noticed it, when otherwise I probably would have just rolled through the complaint without ever stopping to think. So the challenge for us this week is to stop and think. Am I being a good testimony of Christ? Am I looking like Jesus in his selflessness? Or am I complaining and disputing? May the Lord give us the help this week. May he work in us as we work out our salvation and put off complaining and disputing.